Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. In a mayoral campaign with more than a dozen candidates, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of energy and probably a lot of money to break out of the pack. My guest this weekend has proven she can raise money, and she's known for her energy and hard work. It's a conversation with State Controller Susanna Mendoza. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Susanna Mendoza launched her campaign for mayor of Chicago just after winning her re-election as Illinois State Controller, a job she first won in 2016. She was the first independently elected Latinx to hold a statewide office. Before that, she was the first woman to be Chicago City Clerk. And before that, she served six terms in the Illinois House of Representatives. And when she was first elected to that job in 2001, she was the youngest member of the legislature. And that's when I met her, too, actually. Uh, So apparently she likes to make history. But now she's running for a historically tough job against a tough field of rivals, all making big promises. Susanna Mendoza, welcome back. And how are you? Well, it's great to be here. Happy New Year. Uh, I've been a little better health-wise, though. I uh, I don't know if you know this, Craig, but I suffer from really bad asthma. And it's not all the time. Most of the time people see me and <laughs> they think I'm perfectly fine because I am. But every now and then I get a flare-up and it just kind of puts me down. So I'm on my way out of what has been over the holidays uh a lot of bed rest for me, honestly, because of the massive asthma flare-up and kind of an upper respiratory infection I caught that I think is going around. But luckily, I'm not contagious anymore. I'm just still hard to catch my breath. So if you don't hear me going at you as hard as I normally do, that's that's why. I'd, I'd ask your audience to bear with me and my coughing spells. So, <coughs> well, that's, that is okay. Um, I am going to start somewhere other than where I was originally starting because as we are recording this, we have just finished a day in which um, uh, Alderman Edward Burke, uh, the chairman of the City Council Finance Committee and a longtime supporter of yours, uh, has uh, just been uh, or faced federal charges of uh, corruption, specifically attempted extortion. First off, I I would think, I can't say it's a surprise. We know that there was a federal raid, uh, or there were two federal raids, in fact, on his offices. But I I still think this probably has to be uh, kind of a hard hit. Well, I think it's always like a black eye or a a gut punch when voters are faced with another one of these stories, right? I mean, I've seen it play out many times over the years, Um, you know, people that you work with or people that you've had good relationships with, even ultimately disappointing. Um, And, uh, you know, the the fact of the matter is that good public service, uh, the cornerstone of that is trust. And once that's violated, it's it's really impossible to ever recover from that. So it's an unfortunate uh, turn of events, but, you know, uh, it is what it is. And I think that the city needs to move on from this. And it's time for the chairman to step down from uh, his position on the finance committee, which is such a critically important position for Chicagoans. And I'd say it's probably time for new leadership in the 14th Ward as well. Um, 
is this is this a personally hard for you because uh, you've been very close with uh, with Ed Burke. In fact, he's from the very start of your career, even uh, in your races for the state legislature. I, and am I hearing right that that your wedding was at his house? Yeah. Well, I I was married uh, civilly by Ann Burke, uh, who is someone who I will forever admire and respect. She's an amazing woman in her own right. Um, you know, the founder of the Special Olympics. What's not to love about Ann Burke? Um, and uh, and it's it's always sad, like I said, to see, you know, these type of things happen and to realize that here we are again, right? Another black eye for Chicago and I'd say in Illinois. Um, you never want to see these type of things happen, but we're here today and it's unfortunate, but it's important to be able to restore trust and government. And whenever you see these things happen, I mean, things have to change. So, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that while I have had, um, you know, I got my start representing an area where Chairman Burke was a huge portion of that. Uh, so I worked closely with the Alderman of the 14th Ward, with the Alderman of the 25th Ward. I had like five wards, I think, that I had to work with different aldermen in. And he was a part of one of those wards, an important voting block in that ward. And that's how our relationship started. And uh, in the Mexican culture, I don't know if you know this, but my parents are both Mexican. Uh, the culture there is when you get married, you always get married civilly first. Not the case here in the U.S., but from a traditional perspective, trying to honor my parents and their heritage, is that I chose to get married civilly. It was a private ceremony with just mm -hmm. my mom and my dad had passed away already, but my brother and my husband, <laughs> he needed to be there. Yes, that's, yeah. that's always and, a, uh, a good, an essential and, ingredient. Yes, it was my brother, one of my brothers, not my whole family, just one brother, my mom, my maid of honor, and then my husband, his mom and dad, and then one sibling. He's one of nine kids. So it was a small thing really meant to honor my parents, and that's why uh, Ann Burke was gracious enough to, to do that ceremony for us. And then a week later is when we got married publicly in a church, and, you know, that's what everybody knows is our wedding anniversary. It's what we celebrate. But I guess to bring it to present day, the fact of the matter is that Chairman Burke I'm not his endorsed candidate. So while we have had a relationship in the past, he is not supporting my candidacy for mayor. In fact, he endorsed Gary Chico for mayor. Um, and I think that should tell you a lot about what our relationship is like today. And not only that, just a year ago, he was actively fundraising, which is part of one of these allegations that came out today, on behalf of President Tony Preckwinkle. So while I got my start and uh, represented a portion of his district for many years, the reality of it is, is that, you know, I think if I was as close to him as people might think I am, I would be his endorsed candidate, and I'm not. Well, speaking of Gary Chico, and let's get back to the uh, the, the regular campaign sure. stuff. Uh, as we're uh, recording this, uh, the, the former school board president is on the air with a million-dollar TV buy that tries to paint you, Bill Daly, and Tony Preckwinkle as mayoral candidates prone to taxes in one way or another, uh, presumably you voted for some as a state representative. What's your feeling about what is and is not necessary when it comes to revenue for Chicago in the coming years? Well, number one, we have to be honest that the city is facing significant challenges. Uh, this is an area where I feel I have a particular expertise. I mean, as a controller in the state of Illinois, it's been my job over the last two years to navigate the state through the worst fiscal crisis in its history. I've done so in a way that defied, I think, many expectations, including the markets themselves. 
we were faced with a governor who day after day was making decisions that uh, moved our state backwards financially. And I had to walk into that situation and try to correct the course, right? And so not only did many people think it was an impossible task, it was possible. And I gave the markets calm at a time where people said that would frankly be impossible. So, um, you know, I, I took a $16.7 billion backlog, which you've covered many times over, <laughs> and cut it by more than half in just a year. Um, I fought and won a battle to refinance the state's uh, a big portion of that backlog that we were paying 12% interest on at 3.5% over the objections of the governor. You know, I, uh, that, that alone saved taxpayers 4 to $6 billion. And more importantly, it allowed me to put money to work, $6 billion that we refinanced, turned into $9 billion with matching federal dollars. And we were able to, in other words, stimulate the economy back into uh, some semblance of life. So uh, my job for the last two years has really been to triage the state through this economic uh, upheaval and get us on better fiscal footing. Part of that, too, of course, was passing the Debt Transparency Act, which allows me to actually see the state's liabilities as they're being incurred month to month. And that's a huge uh, accomplishment. But it puts me in a position to understand that there are financial tools available that we have to analyze, but most importantly, be honest with the public as to what the pros and the cons are of them. Is a bonding deal the right deal for Chicago? Maybe, maybe not. But if it's something that I'm going to look at, I can assure you that I'll be transparent with the public as to what the pros and the cons are of doing that. I'm, of course, in favor of a Chicago casino and will fight for one as mayor. No mayor's ever been able to do that. But I also think we've never had a mayor who actually knows how to navigate the ins and outs in Springfield the way that I do. And I think that's a massive advantage to Chicagoans in having a mayor of Chicago who also is an expert on navigating the ins and outs of the legislative process in Springfield. So there's a lot of financial tools that we're going to need to look at, whether it's a casino, whether it's supporting a progressive income tax on a statewide level and making sure that Chicago gets its fair share of the revenues and that we apportion a portion of those towards pensions and not not deviate from that. Um, But what I don't want to do is focus on things like regressive income taxes, like what Tony Prankwinkle has done time and time again. I think it was just yesterday she did another one on a parking uh, application tax. And it's like, you know, we don't need to keep electing politicians who don't want to put the sweat equity behind doing the hard lifting, which means governing, and instead just automatically go to the easy well, which is let's just raise taxes. And I don't think she's met a tax she doesn't love yet, right? The regressive soda tax, the parking tax, the sales income tax. I mean, when's it going to stop, right? So I think that we need to be creative in how we, number one, initiate cuts within our own system. Look internally and say, where can we do a better job of being more efficient as clerk? You know, I came in under budget every year that I was a clerk or right at budget. And I've done the same as controller. You know, we've cut internally before asking taxpayers to pay more. So it's going to be a combination of things. There's no magic bullet, but it's certainly an area where I feel very comfortable. Uh, Let's continue on the finance uh, bit a bit. Uh, William Daly says a commuter tax should be on the table. That would affect people who live outside of the city but work in it. Do you support that idea? No. Look, I mean, every city that has a commuter tax, you look at Detroit, Philadelphia, uh, they are actually stagnating in terms of their economy. It's been a job killer. And I do believe that this is just, again, going back to an easy well that panders to a public that doesn't understand the real ramifications of what these, you know, ill-fated policies will do. And so, um, you know, like rather than talk about a commuter tax that frankly should be done on arrival, 
that won't create jobs will actually further uh, create a, a greater exodus of people leaving the city and employers, headquarters leaving the city. Um, and talk about goofy things like renaming the Dan Ryan, right? Like that is nothing more than absolute pandering. I mean, seriously, we have kids dying every day in our streets. Mothers are burying their children. People are losing their homes because of a rigged and corrupt property tax system. And like the best you got to talk about is renaming highway. It's would, just, would you be against it? It's just so dumb. I don't have time to even waste a nanosecond of my energy on what we need for Chicago on nonsense like that. So look, I mean, I'm all for chewing gum and walking at the same time and even blowing bubbles, right? But we have so like a thousand other problems that are bigger to contend with than pandering to the public like that. It's just, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, how about the uh, the the 1.2% uh, real estate transfer tax uh, that um, Gary Chico has proposed or is, is supporting? Uh, and that, this would be on million dollar plus homes. Sure. Well, I mean, he hasn't said what he's supporting it on, right? He just came out for a tax, but didn't say what it would be utilized for. You know, in principle, I'm certainly not opposed to increasing a tax on the wealthiest of homes, like on the mansions, right? You're talking about anything over a million or a million and a half. However, the problem with this concept is that there's already like three or four very reputable or worthy causes who have all earmarked that same tax for, um, you know, to utilize it. And so the problem with the real estate transfer tax is that you actually can only increase it if you go through a referendum process. And then once the referendum passes, then you'd be able to institute it. But it's getting it to a point where the referendum allows for the money to be utilized for one specific or three different things or four, like everyone's competing for the same pot of money. The, the principle, <coughs> I think, is sound, but we have to be more specific as to how you would actually utilize those funds and where the greatest uh, need is. Probably. Isn't that the problem with campaigns these days, though, which is that... You know, people identify a pot of money, whether it's uh, money from from uh, legalized marijuana or casinos or whatever, or uh, the transfer tax, and then spend it over and over again, totally. depending upon which uh, audience they're in front of. Yeah, that's why you have to be honest with the public and be deliberative as to how you would carve out those revenues, right? Because if people say, well, let's pass marijuana, and once we do that, we'll put all the money towards pensions, or we'll put all the money towards education, or put all the money towards this or that. At the end of the day, there's only one pot of money. And if you divide that up in eighths, or you divide it up in sixths, or in thirds, or you give it all into one particular thing, you just need to be honest with the public as to how you're going to divvy up those funds because it's just a one-time pot here. Might be recurring revenues, but you know the need is going to be significant for pensions for many years to come. So for example, a casino, if I were to bring the revenue for a casino, I would want to apportion a percentage of that maybe even a large percentage of that towards unfunded pension obligations. Uh, and then the remainder of that, you'd have to stipulate to the public how you would be utilizing that. And you've got to prioritize, right? At the end of the day, if there's only $100, you can't spend $100 three times. That's $300. It's simple math, right? So, you know, when, when these candidates are talking about how they're going to pay for things, I think it's fair to say, all right, well, how does it add up? Does it add up to 100 because it's a zero-sum game here? You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is State Controller Susanna Mendoza, who is a candidate for mayor of Chicago. Uh, let's turn to uh, to public safety. Um, following the p- 
police department's consent decree is going to take tens of millions of dollars. Um, those are mostly reforms, many of which are underway already. Uh, but what do you feel can be done to lower crime perceptively? Uh, I mean, so that people can see it because you, know, you can tell people crime is down 16%, but as the superintendent often says, people don't feel 16% safer. Um, sure. So what, what can we do? Well, and in reality, I mean, people are still dying in ridiculous numbers, right? So maybe our shootings or homicides are a little over 500 this year. That's nothing to, like, brag about, right? So if you're one of those families who lost a loved one, it's devastating. And so, you know, I think there's there's multiple things. Number one, as mayor, I would let the consent decree guide my mayoralty in terms of dealing with the police department. At the same time, I think that it is critically important and really one of the top recommendations of that consent decree and the Obama Justice Department's report was the need for increased training. And it's not a one-time shot thing, right? I mean, people think like the way that we've done training in Chicago has been so woefully lacking. You basically get it at the training academy when you sign up as a recruit, and then there's no continuous training throughout the rest of your career. And these guys are essentially asked to put on a uniform, be willing to go risk their lives day in and day out, and walk into a neighborhood um, woefully unprepared to deal with, you know, a myriad of different situations. And so at the end of the day, training is first and foremost, not just at the academy, but throughout the career of the officer, whether it's at the patrol stage, multiple trainings, you know, whether it's uh, as they move up the ranks, you know, sergeants and lieutenants and supervisory positions, um, you know, they need to be trained on, on so many different levels. And I feel that without a state-of-the-art training component being first and foremost, things aren't really going to change in the police department. Part of that training also needs to incorporate a change in the ethos of how police officers even think in the city of Chicago. And I think that that will have a pretty dramatic result in the interactions between the police and the public. Uh, And what I mean by that is that, for example, let's start with the realization that anyone who wears the uniform is somebody who should command our respect. I mean, whether you are in the Army, in the Marines, you know, in the Navy, or you're a police, fire, or EMT. But the ethos is very different of those folks who serve in the military, in the armed services, right, who are are trained to be in a warlike mentality to those who should be serving and protecting the public. So we need to move away from what is today, unfortunately, there's no distinction between the mentality, I think, on the street of someone in a war zone to someone in the city, unfortunately. And, and if you live in some of these neighborhoods, it is essentially you feel like kind of like you're in a war zone, which is not a good thing. We need to move away from that. But at the end of the day, if the ethos that the police share is exactly the same as the military mindset, that is not going to get us to a place of commonality and trust between the community and the police. So I'd like to move the police from uh, a ethos of, you know, a military a warrior mentality to more of a guardian mentality, because the police are really, in fact, by just the nature of who they are, meant to serve and protect. It's a protector mentality. And I think we can get there. It's going to take a lot of work, obviously. But, you know, investing in state-of-the-art training uh, throughout the entire career of a police officer, making sure that they are properly equipped and resourced to walk into any situation and be able to identify whether this is a person with a mental health issue versus just someone who wants to fight with the police, you know, um, is going to change the way in which Uh, situations are approached from a 
less of an engagement automatic to more of a de-escalation approach. And I think that'll be helpful. Very briefly, how do you get the police union, the rank and file, to buy into that change in ethos? Because so far they've been pretty, they've been pretty resistant to everything, but that sure. is more than any, anything. Yeah, it's a total different mindset. And I think, number one, the whole new generation of police officers that are coming in is going to be a critical part of that component, right? You, people that decide to be police officers today, it's because they want to change the current system, right? They believe in the goodness and the protector mentality in that guardian mentality. They're not fearful of technology, right? They understand that technology can be your friend and your greatest protector, as a matter of fact. And so, obviously, it's, you know, hiring cops that have that type of ethos from the get-go. And then also making sure that if you want to be a part of the greatest police force in Chicago, you're going to have to abide by this vision and this mentality, um, otherwise, you're really just not helping yourself and you're not making it safer for the officers who we want to be sure make it home safely at night. I think that it's going to be the biggest challenge for a mayor is to fix this relationship between the police and the public. But I can tell you as the sister of a police officer in Chicago that I see this from a different perspective perhaps than any other mayoral candidate. Number one, I know what it's like to be afraid to walk to school for fear of getting shot. I was that little kid who was afraid to walk to school who couldn't fully concentrate as much as I loved to learn on the classwork because I was worried about the walk back home. I'm also the sister of a man who I love with all my heart, who puts on that uniform and for years has been, you know, trying to serve the public. And it is a tough job. And I want to make sure that not only he, but every family member who has a police officer can know that when their loved one puts on the uniform and risks their lives for people that they've never even met, can have the same assurance that they'll come home safely as any mother, especially a black mother who has a son who wants to just go into the neighborhood or be a part of the fabric of the city and have a reasonable expectation that their child will make it home safely too. Bridging that gap is going to be tough, but you need a mayor who's willing to put the sweat equity behind it, who has skin in the game, and that's certainly me. And I'm going to put my heart and soul into helping fix this system because it benefits everyone. I probably kept you talking on that subject more longer than Sorry. I want than I should have, but I do want to talk to you about your education plan. You, Yay! Uh, you, I mean, years after Mayor Emanuel closed fifty under uh, under enrolled schools, you're proposing to put more resources into fifty others. Um, that sounds expensive. <laughs> first off, how how you know how are you going to be able to do that? So don't think of it that way, okay? Think of it as reallocating and better utilizing existing resources, right? So I just finished coming off a statewide tour of advocating for greater school equity funding across the state of Illinois, and the city of Chicago is going to receive about 20% of those funds, which come out to about $70 million. Now, you could argue that just getting more money in the system and continuing to spend it in the same way that we always have might not be the best way to utilize those dollars. And I can tell you as controller that one of the key things that I think differentiates me from other folks is my ability to follow a dollar and see what the return on its investment is. And I think that I want to just approach this differently. I don't want to just take these $70 million and just pump them into a system and hope that they work. Let's reallocate how we're going to spend some of those dollars, target them very strategically. And instead of talking about what 50 schools we're going to close because they're underutilized or under-resourced, Put those equity dollars, which don't mean equal dollars, they mean those dollars are supposed to go by state law to the areas where they're needed the most, where the resources have been lacking the most. And actually double down on these kids who feel totally hopeless in the city of Chicago, 
who feel that nobody cares about them, and they're just on the chopping block to have a school that is supposed to be a neighborhood anchor disappear. All that happens when we close those schools down is it's a reminder that we've given up on this part of the city. And I want every child in Chicago to know that they're going to have a mayor who never gives up on them. And I believe that, as I've said of our state of Illinois, that Illinois will always be a sound investment. And I've looked the markets in the eye and said that Illinois is always going to be a sound investment. Um, I will never default on our debt service payments, and that is true today. Well, guess what? Chicago school children will always be a good investment, and I'm not going to default on them as their mayor. So we're going to double down in my 50 new initiative, which stands for 50 of the most underutilized and under-enrolled schools. And new stands for Neighborhood Education Works. We're going to double down on 50 of the most underutilized, under-resourced schools and create a wraparound service structure that provides job training, <coughs> provides life skills, provides daycare, provides um, apprenticeship uh, uh, coordination with some of the building trades, that provides opportunity counseling services, other social services that right now are offered in many of these communities, but like in totally scattershot approaches, and bring them into these underutilized schools that have a huge footprint that is essentially sitting vacant, and provide these services along with a supper to kids in some of these 50 schools who right now might have major food insecurity issues at home, where they can be in a safe environment longer hours, their parents, instead of rushing to get them at 3.15 or hoping that these kids make it home safe on the dangerous walk back home on their own at 4.15 or 3.15, that they can actually put in a full day of work, go to pick up their kids at night, and while their kids are eating, get access to critical services that they might otherwise not have access to. We can partner with community groups to make this happen. I'm sure that we can better utilize part of those equity dollars to target greatest need. But also, I think that this is an initiative that's really cool that no one's ever done that the philanthropic community of Chicago who wants to make sure that we can do something to stem violence would be able to partner with the next mayor, which hopefully will be me, to do. So I'm excited about this initiative. It's big and it's bold thinking, but it's also very optimistic and hopeful because I know that if we put the sweat equity behind this idea, it can become a real source of hope and pride and the, the foundation, frankly, for rebuilding these neighborhoods. One more purely political question Chicago Federation of Labor poll, which admittedly is they're, they're a labor alliance with some skin in the game, uh, uh, but it shows you and Tony <coughs> Preckwinkle ending up in a runoff if the election were held today. And in their poll, you would win the head-to-head, but depending on the margin of error, uh, it, that could be about a dead heat. What are your polls showing? My polls show the same thing. I mean, like our polls have been very positive. They show that if the election were tomorrow, well, when we did our poll about a month ago or so, right? Which is a little bit before they did theirs. But essentially, it said the same thing, that if the election were tomorrow and there were at the time 20 candidates in the race, she would be about five or six points ahead of me. But then on a one-to-one, I would overtake her and, and win, right? So again, it's just a poll. It doesn't mean anything. As much as it's a poll that favors me, at the end of the day, like the only poll that matters is election day. And so we're going to have two election days, one in February and I hope to be in that mix. Uh, I hope that voters come out and vote for me. Whether it's one or two, it doesn't matter, right? This is a democracy and people are going to have a choice. What I can assure you, though, is that contrary to what my, you know, one of these opponents, Tony Preckwinkle, would have wanted, I am going to be on the ballot. I am on the ballot. And voters will have a choice to elect me as their mayor. 
someone who's really focused not just on the next four years, but the next generation. And I've said this time and time again, Craig, this is no time for a caretaker mayor in the city of Chicago. And the next mayor of Chicago should not be picked by self-coronation. This is a democracy, right? And so the fact that Lori Lightfoot's on the ballot, that I'm on the ballot, uh, I don't know what's going to happen with the other, I think maybe one or two of the other candidates that uh, Tony Preckwinkle challenged, all of whom happen to be women of color, which I think is issue in and of itself. Um, whoever makes it on the ballot is a good thing. I mean, these are additional voices, different ideas, and at the end of the day, voters will decide who they think should lead the city towards the next generation and its future. I think there's a stark difference between myself and the president. Hopefully voters will have an opportunity to gauge all of our ideas. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I couldn't be more excited to be in a moment in history where I could potentially set a vision in place for the city of Chicago that will be life-changing for many people for generations to come. I hope I get the chance to be their mayor. And that is going to be the final word. Thank you, mayoral candidate Susanna Mendoza, for spending this half hour with us. To our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, wbbmnewsradio.com. You can also find our podcasts on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.